Thank you for listening to We Have Ways of Making You Talk. Sign up to our Patreon to receive bonus content, live streams and our weekly newsletter with money off books and museum visits as well. Plus early access to all live show tickets. That's patreon.com slash we have ways. Want a website with unmatched power, speed and control? Try Bluehost Cloud, the new web hosting plan from Bluehost, built for WordPress creators by WordPress experts. With 100% uptime, incredible load times, and 24-7 WordPress priority support, your sites will be lightning fast with global reach. And with Bluehost Cloud, your sites can handle surges in traffic no matter how big. Plus, you automatically get daily backups and world-class security. Get started now at Bluehost.com. Hello there, from um, the interior of a very nice Audi A4. Vorsprung durch Technik. James and I are in the heart of the industrial Rhineland. Um, Westphalian Rhineland. And we are here um, on the, in order to visit the scenes of the greatest feat of aviation ever. Wright Brothers moon landing and this, basically. Yeah, the dam's raid. Operation Chastise. Um, it was only given its order the day before. The day before, and we'll be to- yes, we'll be talking about we'll be talking about Saturday the fifteenth of May. That was when it was given the operation name, code name, chastise. And a great deal of the dam's raid has the legacy of being ordered the day before, basically. Yes. It's all incredibly last minute, and that's the whole. I mean, even from the moment of, of being greenlit, it's only got ten weeks, something like that, uh, which is just nothing. In which to form a, a, a squadron, train it, get it ready for doing something which is completely different to what those crews have been doing up to that point. Because one has to remember that in Bomber Command, you're flying, you're taking off in a bomber stream, which is not in formation. So basically, your squadron from whatever airfield you might be from, would you'd, you'd fly off into the darkness and you would have your your route that you've got to go on. Uh, and everyone would basically go on that route, and you hope you don't bump into one another. And you get to Kassel or Dortmund or Bremen or wherever you're going to. You look for the flares, which are the markers, and then you drop your bombs, and then you go home again. And you're doing that at somewhere between 18,000, 24,000 feet, something like that, you know, four miles up. But, but, but significantly as well, those bombs you're dropping in the bomber stream from 15,000, 20,000 feet... Um, exist whereas when the order for chastises um yeah there isn't even a, there isn't even the weapon to do it there's just drawings there's concept um there's there's tests with a different type of bouncing depth charge which is what it is so the idea is that, is that it it spins on water so you're carrying a rotating depth charge which you drop at a certain height at a certain going at a certain speed and as it hits water it skims over the edge of the water until it runs out of of, of impetus and then it sinks and then explodes as a depth charge issued from a destroyer would. That's the idea. And there is a version of it which is being tested down in, in the fleet in um, the Dorset coast near Chesil Beach. But the upkeep, which has to be substantially bigger, the one to, to hit the dams, hasn't been built at that point. No, and no one, and, and whether, whether you can even build it, 
uh, whether there's enough steel, whether the, whether you can uh, get the get the parts, get it all together. Yeah, and, and you're only going to be able to do that by cutting an awful lot of red tape. Um, uh, and you know, we Brits, we like our red tape, and we like our kind of ways of doing things. So that all has to be be kind of sort of kicked out with the with the dishwater. And there's a, there's an awful lot to sort out before it can even possibly happen. That's that's the interesting thing. And right up to the wire. What I, f- I think so interesting is, is okay, so they do the training. It's all happening. But even on that last week, and it starts off with sort of Monday, the 10th of May, 1943, even at the start of that week, that it will happen in a week's time is absolutely by no means certain. In fact, it's actually odds on that it won't happen because they're not ready. The weapons aren't ready. The tests that they're doing in Reculver, which is just off the North Kent coast, you know, they're only happening that week. There's some testing on the 10th. There's more on the 11th, 12th, 13th. But but they don't even use a live bomb until the till the 13th of May, so three days beforehand. And there isn't even the authorization for it to happen until Friday the 14th of May. And that doesn't come through till 2.40 p.m. at no, 3.40 p.m. in the afternoon. And by the time the signal from Washington, because all the chiefs of staff are at the Trident Conference in Washington at the time, one of the uh, the Allied conferences, strategy conferences, and by the time it's decoded, it's 4.40 p.m. on the Friday before it happens on the Sunday night. I mean, that's just extraordinary, isn't it? And one of the reasons why it is the chiefs of staff are having to give it the go-ahead is because there is a concurrent operation going on uh, with 618 Squadron, which is using mosquitoes, using a highball, which is much smaller, and that is to try and destroy the turpits in the fjord up in Norway. Because the Admiralty are actually heavily involved in in all of this research and development and, and coming up with a weapon, aren't they? This is, this is as much an Admiralty project as it is an Air Force project, right? If anything, it's more of an Admiralty project because they've financed... Barnes Wallace, who's the inventor of the upkeep, to do all the research work in the early stages. So they have, they sort of quite understandably feel they've got first dibs on it. Well, and it's Pound as much as, as it is Portal that's made it all happen, right? Yeah. So, so, so Dudley Pound is, is, is the, um, you know, he's the head of the Navy and Portal is the head of the, uh, the, the RAF. And absolutely it is. And and when the bouncing bomb is conceived, it is conceived by Barnes Wallace not to destroy dams, but to destroy the turpits. And the reason you can't get to the turpits is because there are torpedo nets which are um, slung vertically into the water of the fjord, protecting um, a, a torpedo attack from a submarine slinking into the into the fjord. So how do you get over the torpedo nets? Well, what you do is you have a bouncing bomb that bounces over it. But it's only once they, that Barnes, but Barnes Wallace has been thinking about all this for since before the war. He's been thinking actually, what you really need is something like an earthquake bomb, which will, you know, you can drop on, uh, uh, will penetrate thirty five feet into the into the ground and create effectively an earthquake and destroy lots of buildings and all the rest of it. Uh, and and what you're trying to do is use use a single bomb to cause maximum amount of destruction, which of course is incredibly prescient of him because ultimately in August 1945, that's exactly what happened. But that's his theory. And he's thinking about that before the war, but he can't get enough traction for it. So but, he but, sort of abandons the idea, but then, but he's always thinking about other things that you can do. But, but Jim, I mean, the thing, the, I think the thing that's remarkable with this is we, we say so casually, a bomb that'll bounce across the nets because we know, because we know about the bouncing bomb because it happened. Yeah. Um, and and uh, yesterday when we were 
boarding the plane on our way out to. We last night we were in in uh, Dusseldorf, which uh, is a classic German Rhine city, which well Ruhr city rather, which is essentially all new yep. <laughs> because it was flattened. Yep. But one of the things we were saying on the, uh, as we we're getting on the plane is, had the dam's raid not happened, you know perfectly well it would be a Channel Five uh, crazy missions of the Second World War uh, yep. or aborted crazy ideas. Wallace. Yeah. Inventor of Barnes Wallace planned to bounce a bomb. <laughs> and it, and it, uh, We've got a selection of, of, of modern experts to test whether Barnes Wallace's crazy theories could actually work in reality. Well, exactly. It's so extraordinary and hasn't been hasn't been done since. You know, and, and, and an awful lot of the peculiar business of essentially once they've used the weapon, it's obsolete. Because the upkeep is obsolete the minute they use it. Is the way that is the way that they're seeing it um, at the Air Ministry and at the Admiralty with the two operations in conjunction six one seven and six one eight. The idea is that you use the weapon because you're never going to be able to use it again once you've yes, used. Yes, so it has to be done together. The idea was that they're b- both operations: the Mosquito Operation, which is Operation Servant, um, on the Tirpitz up in Norway. And Operation Chastise to destroy the dams, they would happen the same twenty-four hour period. That's the idea. So that that it's a surprise, it's a surprise. It's a, it's a sort of coup de man operation, and as you say, it can only be used once. That's the theory behind it. Although, as it becomes clear that Operation Servant isn't going to work, and, and and it's not just that the bouncing bomb, the highball, which is much smaller than the upkeep, but a, but a different version of it, which the mosquitoes are using. It's it's clear that that's not working, and the reason one of the reasons it's not working is because as the highball hits the side of the ship, so so basically the idea is is it bounces over the nets, hits the side of a ship, then sinks and then blows up underneath it. The problem is is as it whams into the side of the ship, it's damaged. Yes, so in the tests, um, they have nets to catch the highball so they can examine it, and and if it doesn't go in the net, they lose it, it goes to the bottom of the sea. Yep. If they it. Uh, um, and they start to reason that what's happening is the the depth charge fuse inside the highball is 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 getting smashed, damaged by the impact. So the bomb's not going off, right. so it doesn't work. And uh, but there's a there's a cock up, isn't there, where one of the planes is supposed to drop its highball at twelve hundred feet out, and then it's mismarked at eight hundred feet. So they come in, and the, the, the mosquito comes in and hits the, the. They think the highball hits the ship it's aiming at, which is a French ship. I rather like yep. um, it's the French ship too fast, and that's why it's damaging. And so this cock up even in the test process. Yes, so, and that's all happening in the, in, in the week of the tenth of May. Yeah, yeah, the, yeah. These these trials are all happening on the tenth of May and the twelfth of May, up in Loch Striven or wherever it is. Up yeah. in up in up in it's near Mull, isn't it? It's, yes. it's, yeah, it's yeah. that neck of the woods. So the actual the actual raid uh, at this stage in the, this last week of May, that you know they're they're kind of thinking it needs to be in a full moon period. In May, really. And the reason it needs to be in May is because once you get into June, the water levels start to drop because, of course, in summer you have less rainfall, it's hotter, it evaporates, all this kind of stuff, and, and it's being used. And, and the reason you need the dams, I mean, well, we can talk about that another time, but 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 the whole point is the, the upkeep will only destroy the Myrna Dam, the Ada Dam, and, and potentially the Zorpa Dam, these three of the biggest dams in, in Germany, if... The water levels at the right height, because obviously, the more water is, the greater the pressure, and it is the combination of the explosion magnified by the by the pressure effect of the water above. And there needs to be a certain amount of water above it before the upkeep explodes for it to be effective. 
So once the water levels start to drop, you're going to have to forget it until the following year. Yeah, I mean, I, I think what, one thing that's interesting about about the dams raid, and um, th- you know, those of you who've, who've listened to um, the podcast over the years, you might remember the the raid on the Trigino Aqueduct, Colossus, where yeah. um, X Troop X are parachuted into southern Italy with dynamite, or rather not, because the sappers all land somewhere else with all the explosives, to blow up an aqueduct. And they discover when they get there that there are two aqueducts. And they don't know what it's made of. And they don't know if it's reinforced concrete or blocks of stone. They just don't know anything about it. What's really interesting about the, the dams raids is the intelligence on these structures, their size, their composition, their build. Is really like they really do know what they're they do, really do know what they're attacking. The reason why we know so much about this is because Barnes Wallace, before the war, has been thinking, hmm, what we need to do is get rid of those dams. Because what he recognizes is that the reason the dams are okay, so, so it, it's, it's worth going back in time. There's a chap called Johann Tuller who, in the early part of the 19th century, straightened the Rhine. It is one of the most astonishing engineering feats of all time because of the time when he did it and the ambition you think about this this is is, we're talking about sort of 1800 because the upper rhine at that point was sort of full of sandbanks and little winding little nips and tucks and and it was unnavigable and what tuller realized if you straighten it that will have a greater flow of water which will then deepen it which will then mean that you can have navigation all the way through it. So he straightened the Rhine. I mean, it's just astonishing and shortened it by 50 kilometres. A small shout out here for German efficiency, the stereotype of German efficiency. A tiny bit of a shout out for German efficiency. Um, Massive shout out. So so he does that. So so the the net result of that is suddenly the Rhine is going through through the, uh, uh, the Ruhr, which is very rich in coal. And so suddenly you've got the twin things that you need for industrial production. You've got the power source which is the coal and you've got the means of delivering what it is you're producing so suddenly you can produce all these kind of steel works and all the rest of it because you've got everything but of course what happens is once you set uh, once you sort of upset the balance of nature and the ecosystem and all the rest of it you're then creating a whole host of other problems and suddenly you've got these huge cities emerging Dusseldorf, Dortmund, Essen, Duisburg all the rest of it you need more water and you need water for industrial processes, but you also need water for drinking and bathing and all the rest of it for the workforces that now live in these conurbations. So the solution is to then build dams. So the Zorpa Dam and the Myrna Dam, which are feeding directly into the Ruhr, industrial heartland, are there both for industrial processes and for drinking. So Barnes-Wallace recognises this in so the late well, 1930s. They're, in, they're integral and essential parts of the infrastructure in the, in the Ruhr, and therefore in Germany's war effort, they're absolutely central to the war effort. You know, this is, this is, also, this is the era of great national engineering projects. I mean, the Hoover, yes, da- the a, Hoover Dam is, a, is you know, a, a things that, that, that they, they sit in that context, these dams, don't they? They do. Uh, and also the, the great dam building period, in Germany, which is at the very end of the 19th century and beginning of the 20th century. So we're talking about sort of 1890 to kind of 1914. This period is, uh, and it's Otto Inzer, is, uh, is the great dam architect. Th- these people are absolute household names in Germany. You know, everybody knows who they are. There is, there is incredible national pride. This is part of the Second Reich. You know, this is the, uh, this is the imperial period. You know, this is a point where it's like, we're Germans. You know, we do military. We do engineering. Uh, and, and the relationship between 
between engineering and, and, and the military is incredibly tight. And Well, g- given Prussia's an army in search of a state and all that. But it's all kind of linked. And it's all about sort of, you know, not only are we a great army, we can also build stuff. We can build the best things. You know, we're, we are a manufacturing, modern um, manufacturing country that can build huge, great dreadnoughts, uh, battleships, that can build dams, that can straighten the Rhine. You know, there's no one to touch us. And with the exception of the Americans, they've kind of sort of got a point. And these huge dams are a part of that. And I think the Myrna Dam is opened in 20, 1912, something like that. And, and the um, uh, and these are gravity dams. So what you do is you build a, a huge, great wall, and it's flat-faced on one side with a sort of bank on the water side as, uh, at the bottom. The bottom sort of quarter has a, has a, a sloping bank of silt and, and rubble and what have you. And then you have a, then you have a much steeper bank on the other the side beyond the water and that is a gravity dam and it just works for all sorts of reasons and that is, the Myrna dam is then usurped as the biggest single edifice in Germany single structure edifice by the Ader dam which is completed in 1914 I think or 1913 or 1914 and the Kaiser comes to visit you know, he comes to visit it because this is such an amazing thing the Ader dam it's a, it is the largest dam in Europe. So so qualifies them for Barnes Wallace's attention then. Yes. So so Barnes Wallace recognizes that these dams are really, really important to their industrial processes. And, and Barnes Wallace's theory is look, if you can knock out the industry, then you knock Germany out of the war and because you're knocking out their ability to wage war. Uh, and what's not to like about that? And that avoids you having to have lots of huge armies and all the rest of it. Uh, and if you can do that with a handful of single earthquake bombs, huge giant bombs that can be delivered by the Victory Bomber, which can, you know, fly over 300 miles an hour um, and which can operate in a pressurised cabin at 40,000 feet where no anti-aircraft gun can reach it and no other um, enemy fighter can reach it. Again, what's not to like? And he's designing that too, right? And he's designing that too because he is the the assistant chief designer at Vickers Aviation. We're going to take a break as we wind our way we're winding our way up a hillside in search of the Ada dam it's and it's uh, before we take the break i'll just i'll just describe the scene uh, like i said it's a, it's a, a winding bendy road that's coming up the side of the hill um we're in thick forest it's quite low cloud at the moment but you do get you do get the sense that it's Sorry. deepest it's deepest darkest germany though where 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 could be nowhere else could, could, could be nowhere else exactly um we'll see you in a tick Welcome back to We Have Ways to Make You Talk with me, Al Murray, and James Holland. I didn't say that at the start, but I don't think I think they don't know by now. They know exactly. So war waffle, and we're here to talk about a Wunderwaffen. I mean, after all, the Germans talk about Wunderwaffen a lot in their. Uh, yeah, so why can't we? Why can't we? This, I mean, if there's no, no doubt the upkeepers of Wunderwaffen, and so Wallace is Barnes Wallace. He's a, he's a fascinating man. He's, he's he's religious. He's married to his much younger cousin. Yes. Uh, it's all, <clears throat> which I, you know, when you look at that. Okay, it's a singular man. Uh, he lives in Dorking or somewhere, doesn't he? Not um, very close to Dorking. Yeah, um, I've actually been to that house with his daughters. But, but my point about Barnes Wallace is is that he's very interesting because he wasn't university educated. You know, he, he left school at fourteen or whatever, 
um, when he became a, 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 an engineer. He then did a whole degree in something like three months remotely. But he's very much a product of the, um, of, it's quite interesting. Uh, D- David Edgerton makes this point when he says people look at, look at British industry and they say in engineering, there are no university graduates. So what does that tell you? And what he says is it tells you that if you want to be, if you want to be an engineer, you don't bother going, to, you don't go to university. You go to work for, an engineering company and you and you, and you learn and you yeah, yeah you learn it for the people who are actually doing it yeah. um and and wallace is one of those people yeah and, and and he's an amazing natural mathematician he's incredibly inspired he is very religious he's a, a very genial fellow he's a big shouldered tall six foot two kind of solid bloke i mean the amazing thing is that i've just realized that the times of the dams raid he was exactly the same age as i am now He's 52, um, albeit a complete silver top by that stage. You know, he's one of these guys where the suits always sort of, you know, looked a bit shabby, slightly sort of hung off him and all the rest of it. But but what you shouldn't be fooled into thinking is that he was some kind of airy boffin, you know, who was sort of, you know, banging his head against brick wall of, 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 of bureaucracy and people who wanted to, you know, computer says no. It was none of that at all. You know, he was an absolute networker to beat all networkers. He was incredibly manipulative. But but in a very genial and affable way. Well, because and that was because because like a lot of people, when you when you're very clever and you've got a brilliant idea, you're absolutely convinced of your rightness, and you want to persuade as many people as possible of your yeah. rightness. So he was very determined to do that. He's an incredibly single-minded fellow. And, well, you know, and has track record too. So the R101 and the which is uh, in, which met which in the airship which met a tragic end outside Paris, but was nevertheless at the time the largest airship in the world with its geodetic um, structure that structure yeah. that he then really incorporates in the design of the Wellington. He's, he's designed a very, very successful aircraft for the RAF, yep. for the Air Ministry. So they know the quality of the guy. And he's and he's at Vickers. It's it's not like he's a cottage industry guy, is it? No, no, he's not. And Vickers, Vickers is absolutely huge because Vickers is not just Vickers Aviation. It's also Vickers is also making bought-out supermarine. It's also building tanks. It's also building artillery pieces. You know, I mean, it is the number one. He's the carrier, the... Uh, Bren carries a Vickers thing, isn't it? Yeah, I think so. Universe, yeah, yeah Universal carrier, yeah, absolutely. You know, so they're 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 building a huge amount of of war material. Vickers is huge, and and um, Alf Pearson is the chief designer of Vickers Aviation, and so Barnes Wallace is the assistant chief designer. But that what allows him to have the latitude to go off on tangents and sort of think of other projects. But before the war, he's convinced that the way to do it is to create this earthquake bomb that can be dropped from the Liberty Bomber at 40,000 feet in its pressurised cabin flying at 300 miles an hour. And he sussed it all out. And there's no question that that, that he's right, that, that the Liberty Bomber is six-engine bomb. It's perfectly possible to make it, in theory, um, that the earthquake bomb will be incredibly effective. But it's like all these things, you know, these are incredibly expensive projects. It's about priorities. But he then also starts thinking about dams. He starts thinking about what are the targets for these earthquake bombs. And he's thinking, well, what the best thing to do would be to drop an earthquake bomb on the on the Zorpa Dam and yeah. on the Ada and particularly the Myrna. The two the Zorpa and the Myrna are the two that feed into the into the Ruhr. The the Ada, although it's massive, leads into Kassel, which is an industrial town and it's an important town, but it's not it's it's further east than the Ruhr. But anyway, the point about Barnes and Wallace is is that when he doesn't know something, he thinks, Okay, well I want to know it, so I'm gonna go and find it. So he writes off to people and what he writes to, he writes to loads of Germans in the before the war. German industry in bookshops and antiquarian bookshops says, can you send me all the details you have about this dam? So he's got blueprints, but the equivalent of, he's got all the the drawings and construction details of these dams in Germany by the time war breaks out because it's peacetime. So of course the bookseller is going to send him a detail of it. And because these edifices are so 
incredibly famous and well known in Germany. They've There's been, lots of been written. Yeah, they've about. been written about the lot. So, so, it, so it would be like buying a book about Tower Bridge. Yeah. So he knows that it's you know the the Myrna Dam is 198 feet tall or whatever it is. Yeah. Um, he knows the exact precise proportions. And the interesting thing about gravity dams is gravity dams, the proportions are always the same. So even if you're making a model one, the proportion of your gravity dam will be exactly the same right. if it's a foot high as to one that's 198 feet high. So basically, the, the, what you do, if it's a foot high and, uh, and you need X amount of explosive to blow it up, you need you need you scale yes. up, and you scale up that. to the larger dam. They knew that, but what they didn't realise until they started putting dropping charges against the dam, so so they had all these models at the road. Um, research laboratories, which are actually at Harmonsworth, which is now Heathrow. So those laboratories are now being consumed by, I don't know, Terminal 5 or something. But 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 that's where they were. And they were there to do research on road building because road building in the 1930s was still in its infancy. You have to remember that most roads were dirt roads hmm. into the 1920s and weren't tarmacked, you know, weren't asphalted. Yeah. So people are still kind of working out what's the best way to build a road. And that's why you've got this laboratory. But what they set up was all these model dams there. And they're doing these experiments on them. Um, and it's only once they actually decide that, that actually they're going to give up on the experiments because they can't work it out. They, they, they think that the explosives they're going to need to destroy the Myrna Dam is so, so enormous that it can possibly be carried. And it's only by accident when they start putting water behind it that they realise that actually... The effect of water pressure yeah. um, the force expands of the, the force uh, of the water amplifies the explosion. Yeah. Exactly that. So yeah. then they think, mm, okay, well, there's this, there's a Birmingham Water Company or whatever it's called um, has this dam in Wales called Nantigro, which is a gravity dam. So again, it's it's a real dam, but it's very small and it's not really used anymore. So they go, okay, well, let's let's try and blow it up then, see what happens. <laughs> so they 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 upscale the amount of explosion that was required on the model and bingo, blows it up. So they then realise that actually, if you then upscale again to the Myrna Dam, and the Ada Dam is actually, in terms of size, of the structure of the dam wall itself, okay. is slightly smaller, that then, then that should, in theory, be destroyed by something which only weighs five tonnes and that can be carried by a Lancaster. Okay, so, so this brings us to the question of, really, famously in the story... Bert Harris says, I bet my shirt, this will never happen. It'll never work. There is no weapon. They won't, And even if they deliver the weapon, it'll be six months late and then it won't work. Yeah. So is the question around the dam's raid really a question of the weapon rather than the efficacy of attacking dams as part of your economic war strategy? Because if you're blowing up dams to test it, you're pretty committed to the idea of destroying dams, aren't you? You know, there's a, there's a lot of serious thinking going into So, So is... Is it really that Harris's objection is to the is to the weapon rather than the objective? No, he's Harris. <laughs> Harris is all for all for blowing up the objective. There's no question about that. Yeah. What he thinks is is you know he's in charge of bomber command. He's just launched his all out strategic air campaign against yeah. Germany and against the Ruhr. That has only begun the fifth and sixth yeah. of so he felt, of March. And he you have to admit that difficult the, enough. The, the green light yeah. for chastise is given on the twenty eighth of February. Yeah. So he's a week away from launching yeah. And what he doesn't want is some of his best crews in Bomber Command. Distraction from the main effort. Distraction from the main effort. Yeah. On on an idea which seems completely bonkers. Yeah. Completely mad. 
uh, and where the chances of of it actually coming to fruition and being successful and actually achieving what it sets out to because, do because there is no weapon very very small because, because there's there is no, no weapon, weapon it's just an idea and 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 peeling crews off is a thing he's objected to before because with the pathfinder force the thing he really doesn't want is good crews taken from squadron to cause a sort of cord elite. And this is a thing that the army don't like either about commandos and parachute forces, isn't it? Your motivated people will bugger off to a corps elite and you, you, you won't reap the benefits of having motivated people in your in your standard units. And that's very much the yeah. that's very you, much you've the, got your elite, but you're yeah. but you're denuding your main effort. <laughs> you know, the, the, the point about about the bouncing bomb is <laughs> And again the, just say that word. Just say, say that bounce, phrase. Say bouncing bomb because the because the thing is is. So hold on, you're telling me that <laughs> yeah, you're yeah, going to yeah, drop yeah, a bomb yeah. at at a hundred foot or yeah. whatever it's going to be yeah. on a sixpence when yeah. we know that we can't hit a barn door at kind of yeah. you know a hundred paces. Yeah. Well, also at, at at night, and the bomb which is going to is going to weigh four tons. Yeah. Yeah, 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 and it's going to spin at five hundred. And it's then going to bounce across the water. Yeah. Okay, great. So, okay, so you've you've, you've created a prototype which is not the right size, which can bounce. Bully for you. Yeah. Uh, the other thing is 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 do not believe for a minute that this is the first wacky idea that someone's come up yeah, with. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Bert Harris has a name for these, which is panacea mongers. Yeah. And he says, you know, I'm sick of it. You know, don't come to me with. a barking idea come to me with an absolute kind of foolproof concept that that not a concept that something that that is concrete that actually works yeah and i might be interested yeah, yeah, yeah. but don't waste my time on this nonsense yeah, yeah. why it happens well, and how but, it gets through is really really interesting because the key to all this is fred winterbottom and fred winterbottom is a spook um he's he's in air intelligence at, at um in the secret service and he is an old friend of Barnes Wallace. <laughs> he, he's a, a kind of an enabler, and he's a mover and shaker. He has a fantastic address book. He's incredibly charming. He's been around the block. He spent time in Germany in the 1930s. You know, he knows a thing or two about all sorts of different things. And he, he knows and trusts Barnes Wallace and knows that he's onto something. But the key is, how does Barnes Wallace convince the right people at the top? Uh, and how does he? And, and the whole point about the bouncing bombers was this conceived as an admiralty project to hit the turpits. Yeah. But all those experiments at the Road Research Lab have persuaded Wallace that actually this could be applied to the dams, because actually you don't need as much explosive as he initially thought. Yeah. Because of the expansion of the pressure effect of well, water. and also it's, it, it, the difference in the target is the. Is part yep. of it too, isn't it? And and the other thing is, you don't need a victory bomber to deliver it. You need yeah. a Lancaster, which is what you've already got. You, you might have to adapt it a little yeah. bit, but you've, you it can carry it. Fred Winterbottom is completely aware, completely gets it. But how do you persuade the powers that be that this is a good idea? And well, what he does is he <laughs> sends this absolute masterful letter in the middle of February 1943, and he implies. That the RAF have got, we've got this thing. It's very important that Portal sees this. You wouldn't want yeah. him to not know about it, and for yeah, the, yeah. the the Admiralty to steal a march. Yeah. It's just it's an absolute masterpiece of Machiavellian manipulation. <laughs> and Portal looks at it and goes, "Well, I'm not having the Admiralty to steal a march on us. This sounds absolutely great. What's not to like?" That in the end, a tale as old as time, though, isn't it? In the history of the Second World War, that in the end, what you've got inter-service rivalry. Why we don't want the chaps, the bloody Admiralty, to 
reap the glory of this. Because after all, the, the, the Admiralty may have developed the weapon, but it'll be, it'll be 618 Squadron. It's an RAF squadron that would, will attack you, the Turpins. The RAF don't, don't want to be... They don't want to be caught out and suddenly thinking, hang on a minute, why weren't we backing this particular, you know, golden nugget? And Portal thinks, on balance, this sounds like it's, it's, it's worth pursuing. So they then have a number of meetings about it. And this is exactly the point where where the head of Vickers has said to Barnes Wallace, you need to back off from this. You know, you're just getting on everyone's nerves. You know, back off. And then suddenly it's all on. Um, and it's this is why you can't sort of make it up when you're looking at the stories of it. Because, you know, if you were going to write a Hollywood film, of course you'd have it sort of, you know, the moment of his deepest nadir comes a minute later, his greatest triumph. Um, and, and that's exactly what happens. And... Winterbottom is is the conduit to that. You know, he is the the person who makes it happen. So he's a very, very, very key character in the whole Dam's Raid story. And yet, Chester. and yet, I mean that that shows the sort of bureaucratic level of writing memos and all that sort of stuff that does tends not to come into the story. That it's uh, yeah, I would some say so. But sternly, also, sternly worded memo. But 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 you know, spare a thought for Bert Harris. Personally, I'm totally with him on this. Uh, if I had been him, I'd been, you know, two weeks away from launching this campaign that I've been building on for a year. And somebody suddenly saying, you know, you're going to need to take 30 of your Lancasters away and some of your best crews to do this crackpot idea, which which seems a long way from happening. I think I would agree with him. I would say it's not worth the the chances of success do not outweigh the massive disadvantages of pulling it, you know, but, of putting it on. But in the end, uh, he can be overruled. He because, can be overruled because he's only a command chief. He's not the chief of the RAF. And Portal, there's a big meeting about it and they have this discussion and they think, yeah, actually, on balance, I think it is worth the punt. And so as a result of that, it gets greenlit. And again, credit where credit's due with Harris. Harris can argue the toss and argues fights for his corner but an order is an order. And when an order is put yeah. in, he goes, okay, fine. And he backs it to his to, to the fullest. Because there's no point in being difficult about it. If you're going to go for it, you want to give it the best possible chance of success. You know, it's no, no, no reason for him to have it failing. So it's February the 26th where the green light for the entire thing is lit. Ten weeks to go. Well, yes, Good luck, everybody. They have to do it. There is that window. And the window with the full moon is around 15th to the kind of... 20th of May. That's your slot. So you've got these two concurrent operations. You've got Operation Servant, you've got Operation Chastise. Servant has been going on for a lot longer than um, the planning for it, than, than Chastise. And there is this feeling now that, that, that Chastise might take priority, you know, that the dams raid might take priority over the over Operation Servant, the, um, the, the plan to hit the Tirpitz with the smaller bouncing bomb. And usurp all the groundwork that the Navy have invested in and, and, and been, been undertaking for a kind of a year, year beforehand. But from, the, from an RAF point of view, end of February to the middle of May is not a lot of time mm. to form a squadron, train a squadron into doing something completely different to what they normally do. Yeah. You know, there is a massive difference between going off in a bomber stream at 18,000 feet and operating at 100 feet. And flying All down and, and flying around the corner here, down this valley, and then pulling up that way to starboard, to starboard because uh, yeah. to port it, it, it to is, port is, is an enormous mountain. A massive challenge. I, I cannot stress enough. And at the time that it's greenlit, there isn't a weapon, there isn't an aircraft, there isn't a crew to do it, and you've got ten weeks. So at that point, it's like, okay, guys, let's go. And it's like tick, 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 all the time. I mean, it is, it is. 
astonishing. And this is why Bert Harris is saying this is absolutely bonkers. Yeah. Well, he's only just got the Lancasters, really. Yeah, so he doesn't uh, want to, you know, 30 is a lot of Lancasters to, to, to risk on an operation which at that point doesn't have the right type of Lancaster. You know, you would need specially adapted yeah. Lanc- Lancasters to take this bomb and it doesn't have a weapon and it doesn't have a crew. And it's incredible, you know, and, and, and even if you do get the weapon and even if you do manage to adapt the Lancaster in time yeah. and even if you do manage to train the crew in time, to send them there and for it to then actually be successful is so remote at the very end of February 1943. It's not true. Well, join us on What Ifs of the Second World War. What if Barnes-Wallace' crazy plan had come to fruition? Did it change the course of World War II and defeat defeat Adolf Hitler? (laughs) We'll see you again for more Dam's Waffle. Cheerio. Cheerio.